morning. Um, I'm Chris. If I don't know you, I'm um, lead pastor here at Riverstone. I'm glad you're here. If you have your Bible, open it to 1 Peter um, chapter 2. Today, we start a conversation on community. Uh, not just uh, community as a sociological experiment or you know, observation, uh, but distinctly Christian community. What is it? Why is it? What makes it? What sustains it? What's the point? <laughs> Why be a part of it? Huh? Is it overrated? <laughs> a little overrated? Like, is it really necessary? Have you ever met a Christian? Like, have you ever hung out with a group of Christians? They have their own language. They have their own inside jokes. You're like, what is this guy talking? Are we at church? Some of them are straight up weird, right? Christians seem to create these little bubbles. You know what I mean? Like you walk in, everyone's lovely, but you immediately feel like an outsider. You know what I'm talking about? Some of you are like, yeah, I felt that this morning. Welcome to church. And then Christians are all over the place these days, aren't they? I mean, some of them are harsh and mean and angry and demanding, whether it's theological or politically rationaled, right? Plenty of Christians seem to have reasons for them to live in a continual state of anger. Do they not? And then on the other side, there are some such peaceful, hippie people pleasers. I mean, to the point of indecision, you ever wonder how they pick a restaurant when they go out to eat? What do you want? What do you, after you, after you, just pick a restaurant, right? Right? And then social media is just going to make it worse if you're trying to understand what it means to be a Christian these days. I mean, it's impossible to get a grip on them, right? You got some that are rose-colored glasses, everything's fine, power of positive thinking, and you got some acting like if you are not an enraged political activist, you're not a Christian, right? All of them saying, I'm a Christian, I go to church, I do this thing. Yeah, so recently I've, I've heard a conversation between people I love, both Christians, talking about cultural issues, and one of them said to the other, I no longer subscribe to your version of Christianity because it did not affirm and line up with a certain political ideology. You've probably heard conversations like that. Amen. Okay, so she has. Awesome. Me and you, sister. <laughs> right? And here's the landscape we live in, y'all. This is, it's, it's, the waters are murky. And there's a lot of confusion right now as to what it means to be a part of Christian community, what it means to be a part of the people of God. What if someone came up to you today and asked, what is the church supposed to be about? Like, what if someone came up to you today and asked, what's the vision for Christian community? Like, what? Why be a part? Would you struggle to answer that? Would you have just a, a rush of all these thoughts? And well, I don't know, you know, even personally. Anyway, what do you hope to gain right now by being in this room? Like, what's the point? Anyone else plagued by these questions in bed at night? Like, what is, what is it exactly supposed to do for you? Our thoughts are convoluted with social issues and ideology, and our ears are often bent to whoever is loudest and flashiest. Flashiest. The Barna Group, which is a religious cultural research group, came out with a study showing that people in large swaths are now choosing their community of faith 
not based on whether or not the gospel's preached, whether or not people are being transformed by Jesus, whether or not the Holy Spirit's alive and moving, whether or not marriages are being healed or reconciliation is peace and or is reconciliation and peace is pursued, but instead, a large swath of Christians today are choosing their church on whether or not that church subscribes to a political ideology. I think it was like 30% or something like that. I don't really, I think 85% of statistics are made up on the spot, so whatever, you know. But the reality is, Barna didn't need to tell you that because you probably already knew it, right? It's, I'm just gonna be straight with you. Is why this church looks a lot different now than it did two years ago. I'm just saying, like, I just, I had this deep, seated unwillingness to let this pulpit be hijacked by the left or the right. And I just kind of, I just kind of put my flag in the ground when I'm not going to read their scripts, you know, like I got my scripts and guess what it does? It has things to say to both, right? And so I just kind of said the things to both. And the funny thing is, both who were really passionate on each side, they just kind of, I scared, they, they, they're, they're, anyway, okay. <laughs> this, the script that we're going to try to dig into today, y'all, it has things to say to both sides, and it refuses to bow to either, okay? And what's happening, y'all, today, I'm telling you, this is happening today, is an insidious deceitfulness in professing Christians, which is leading them to serve and worship and lay prostrate before a passing fleeting, secular vision of community, okay? So instead of God's eternal transcendent vision of what it means to be his people in the world, let's just use Jesus to further our short-sighted and honestly geographically politically based agenda. Okay, that's happening. You've probably experienced it. If you are on social media of all, at all, you've seen a large majority of Christians doing stuff like this with Jesus, He's my ally, and we're both beating up on you, right? So, I mean, just, just aside, just aside, just so you know where I'm standing. Like, I love my country, okay? We enjoy freedoms that we take for granted every day. The founders were at least in some ways, in some places, influenced by biblical ideas. But if you had a line going infinitely in either direction that represents all of time, America, the nation itself, would be a speck on that line the size of a pinprick compared to eternity. I'm not talking about your life. I'm talking about this nation's life, a speck on the spectrum of eternity, right? Me and you, on the other hand, were created to be eternal beings, to live with God forever. Nations, countries, constitutions, as good as they may be, huh? will all lay in a trash heap while the saints of God go on for eternity, loving and delighting in Jesus, all right? So listen to me. If the cultural storm that we're in right now is just wearing you thin, all right? Anyone? Can anyone just get there, right? If you've been offended by Christians on social media and you're not sure if you really want to be a part of Christian community, can I just can I beg you, don't be a fool and trade an eternal birthright as a daughter and son of the king. Don't trade eternal transcendent biblical flourishing for a passing cultural ideology as good as, it, as good as that ideology may promise to be. Right. Don't trade. It's like Esau trading his birthright as a son, his whole inheritance for a cup of soup. All right? Genesis 25. I'm not saying laws and politics don't matter. 
God calls us to engage in the welfare of the city, to push back darkness, to pray. It matters. But listen, no one's heart is going to be transformed by coercion, by peer pressure, or legislation. No one's. What I'm saying is that law, law, rules, whether they be Christian-rooted or not, lacks the power to transform the human heart. And thus, any community, any community. So when you try to locate what is Christian community? We're at a serious disadvantage already because many of us, the disadvantage is that we're looking at Christians to define it for us. And that's, as you think, well, well, where else do you look? It's understandable, right? But the peculiar thing about who the church is, is it is not self-defined, okay? The church doesn't get to define the church, we don't get to decide who the church is based on what we like. God defines the church because he made it. So if we're going to learn what is Christian community, we have to look at the book. And what we'll find is any time the book bears its weight on any culture, any people, any community, there will be things about that culture and community that scripture will affirm. It'll say, hey, that's great. And there will be parts of that culture and, and society that scripture will unequivocally condemn. They will say that leads to death, right? So let me give you an example. Maybe it's a society that honors its elders, right? Like think of Asian types. Of, and you know, so the scripture is going to come along and say, hey, that's awesome. Amen. Honor your elders. But maybe it's a society that is overbearing and demeaning to its children. And the scripture is going to come along and say, Jesus is going to say, if you don't become like them, you're not going to get in. So scripture, when it bears its weight on any culture in any time, there will be things about that culture that scripture is going to say, amen. And there will be things about that culture that scripture is going to say, mm -mm, it's not the way to life. Do we have ears to hear those things that scripture has to bear its weight on our society, in our time, in our day, on our culture, right? So the examples go on and on. Depending on the culture, the Bible is going to confront them all throughout time and space with a totally new way of being human, Right? Christianity is not an ethnically based religion. It does not rely. This is big. Most religions will rely on ethnic ties to maintain itself. Christianity does not. Today, Christianity is the most, is the most ethnically and racially diverse religion on the earth. There's a reason for that. Part of the reason is because the scriptures come to us and transcends our sense of culture, time, and space, right? Christianity, most ethnically, those, those scriptures come from a specific culture at a specific time, right? That's the reality of how the scriptures came together. It has somehow managed to transcend all culture and time more than any other religion because today, that's what I'm saying, is the most diverse religion on the face of the earth. Part of the reason is that though men may try Jesus refuses to be a puppet for any one race or any one nation or one culture or one political ideology. He just does. As Lewis says, everyone's looking for an ally in Christianity for their own agenda. And all Christianity is going to offer is either a master or a judge. Right? So now it is precisely this transcendent universal nature of scripture, y'all, that's such a treasure to my heart. I hope it's a treasure to your heart, and this is what I mean. It comes to us from outside the bubble. It reaches to us from outside of your ideological cultural framework. 
It reaches to you outside of your own century. It reaches to you outside of the visible world. We believe that scripture is God-breathed. And therefore, it offers us rest, peace, and truth that therefore transcends our culture, time, and nation. Right? It comes to us from outside. And amidst cultural and even apocalyptic fears, it offers to tether your heart to something stronger. Huh? than your own wisdom, than your own emotion, or than your own century. So today, we sit with the question, what binds Christians together? What's the commonality between me and you right now, right? What's the commonality between us and people gathering in South Africa or Mongolia right now, right? We have, well, not right now, right? We're not the time. We have to remember, right, as large as we feel the church in America is, it is a small fraction of global Christianity, right? And acknowledging y'all, the limited perspective of our time and culture is going to be really helpful as we begin to think about what binds Christians together throughout the ages, throughout history, and even in this room. What binds the community of faith across? What's the transcendent, eternal flag that the hearts of the saints rally around? What is it? This is an essential question, y'all. Listen, if you don't have a clear vision of this, then we start thinking, well, I guess it's the color of the carpet. I guess it's the kind of songs we sing. I guess it's the translation of the Bible we read. That's why we're all in here. I guess it's, God help us, the style of leadership, right? I guess that's why we're all here, right? Or the fact that like 80% of us drive gray Honda Odysseys. Like, have you, did you, did you notice that? Like, did you pull in and were you like, is this a homeschool co-op? Like, but it's not, it's not that they're all odysseys. Does anyone else notice this? They're all gray. Like someone branch out, y'all. Get like, you don't got to get a Toyota. Just get a white one, you know, just get something, right? Because then, because then dude, listen, I don't, we're giggling. Because then dude comes in and he's like, oh, I guess you've got to drive a gray Honda Odyssey to be in with Christians. Oh, yeah? Right? <laughs> I like the young guy that's like, I ain't never going to drive a minivan. It's like, dude, it's, it's all right. Your time's coming. All right? Your time's coming. All right, don't tell me. Y'all, y'all, that, y'all with me? Don't tell me you didn't feel like a boss when you drove up in your house in that new minivan. All right? <laughs> but the inevitable, unintended problem is that something, listen, The inevitable, unintended problem, it is unavoidable in some ways, y'all, is that something tends to rise to the surface and begins to be the primary identifier of Christian community. You understand what I'm saying? It is inevitable. So if you grew up in the 80s, what it meant to be part of the people of God was homeschooling, blue jean skirts, 15 layers of makeup, and big hair. That's what it meant to be a Christian. And if you grew up around then, you're giggling because you know... You, you know who I'm talking about with the hair and the makeup, right? Or only letting your kids watch Superbook and McGee and Me. Anyone? You start hanging out and you're like, I guess, I guess that's what Christians watch. We just have to watch all this. Right? Or, as my wife showed me, that is the visual terror of Salty the Singing Songbook. Right? Gate. Gave me nightmares as an adult, man. It's like, it's like Blue Man Group and Mr. Kool-Aid had a baby, right? Right? 
So some of you, some of you I just totally lost. That's okay. We'll just, let's move on. All right. If, if you grew up in church, you remember the phases. And what happens? Something, some trend, be it, you know, music or the kind of car you drive or the kind of TV or entertainment you watch, something rises to the surface so that someone comes on the street and they say, what's it mean to be a Christian? And he looks around and he says, well, it must mean you drive a gray Honda Odyssey, right? right? Or you, you know, listen to Carmen or Promise Keepers or whatever. There's these trends, there's these trends, whether they're political, you know, whatever, they become social indicators. Are we chatting? All right, this is what it means. So I had a lot of Baptist friends growing up. I grew up around here, like a lot of Baptist friends. And being a Christian, being in a Christian community meant you did not watch R-rated movies. This is what the street, this is how it translated to the street. All right, you may have a mental ascent to some facts about Jesus. You may talk about the Bible at church, but then you get on the street and you're like, oh, okay, well, what it means to be a Christian is you don't watch R-rated movies. And if you were a man, you didn't chew, drink, or date girls that do. How's it go? Yeah. <laughs> drink, chew, or date girls. Yeah, you remember it. That's right. That's right. So, or let's get a bit further. Let's just keep pressing because I'm already there. You know, we, let's all give mental sense to the Jesus and the Bible. Let's talk about the Bible. But if you want to fit in right here, you better be a Republican. That ain't a real thing. Okay. And the mission and the vision of what it means to be the people of God is convoluted and distorted and honestly hijacked by race or politics or a number of other things, some innocent, even good things, but none are what binds us together as the, as the people of God across time and space. They're not salty, ain't strong enough, y'all, right? They're not strong enough. Politics isn't strong enough to bind the church of God across nation, ethnicity, time, and space. They're innocent, some of them are even good, but they are ghostly, empty, and an honestly uninspiring visions of what it means to be a Christian. And if that's it, I'm out. Not interested, okay? And in some ways, y'all, listen, this blending of Christian community and other causes or other descriptors is natural. It, I mean, that's what the contextualization of Christianity looks like. There has to be these indicators that other people look and say, oh, they're different. It's called, the Bible's been called holiness, right? There's all these things. They're going to mark the people of God. But if we drift from the central vision of what it means to be a Christian, then we end up in these little side alleys. And other things raise to the top of what it means. that We rise something else up the flag, up the flagpost of Christianity. And all of a sudden, here we are bowing down to what? a certain theological persuasion, a certain style of leadership, a certain way of doing church. And the mission and the message of the church becomes distorted, right? So let's do it. You have your Bible, 1 Peter 2, 9. And I'm going to argue that this scripture is a pretty great summarization of the mission and vision of the church, what is supposed to bind it together across time and space. 1 Peter is written by Peter to the churches in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, who are enduring fierce suffering, as is clear from the letter. And the whole letter can be summed up in this. What does it look like to be the people of God in a hostile environment? So just go ahead and pick it up, all right? So he says in 1 Peter 2, verses 9, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you're God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So what we get here is a people that is formed. Once not a people, now a people, a group. Something binds them together. And what is the characteristic of that group? Well, number one, they're called. 
They're chosen. Did you see that? They weren't the first ones that acted. Did you see that? Chosen, called, right? Someone, something, right, acted on them and made them a part of the group. It brought them in, came in from the outside and picked them up, right? They heard something reaching out to them, calling out to them. And it's why the church can never be accredited by, for itself or define itself because it's called and originated with someone else. God himself calls and forms the church. The biblical paradigm is that the people of God are someone who have been called, chosen, picked. Theologians are gonna call it prevenient grace. It's this, it's this idea of while we were yet sinners, Christ died. It's this idea of when you were in darkness, a great light dawned, right? He acted when you couldn't act. It's the first primary indicator of what it means to be the church. Someone has acted on your behalf, right? If you want to just sum it up, right, the commonality of the saints is really the work of Christ, but we're getting ahead of ourselves, right? What he has done, the gospel, the Holy Spirit, opened their eyes to something, right? But the church, it's not just the work of Christ that defines the church. It is their response to that work, right? They see it as in a certain way that changes how they respond to that work, right? So this new people who've been called out of darkness uh, by the work of Christ respond by, so the scripture is going to tell us, giving up control. Did you see that? A people for his own possession. So I'm trying to be kind of a little more straight here. With, so point number one, right? Called. I'm trying to do the C thing. Point number two, control. Doesn't really work. Giving up control. Okay. In other words, their, their eyes were open to something so inspiring. Their eyes were open to something so desirable that they resolved in their hearts, I will give up anything to have that, right? They surrendered their right to themselves, a people for his, did you see it? His own possession, right? In the light of the work of Christ, this group of people has said, I no longer own or define myself. I have given that right to God. One of the primary distinguishers of what it means to be the people of God is you've given up ownership of yourself. You say and come to the conclusion that he, I am his. He owns me. This is what it means, y'all, when scripture talks about being in Christ or the phrase, Jesus is Lord. It's getting at ownership, right? Who owns you? And really have two choices. It's either you or the Lord, right? Or the enemy, maybe, or the Lord through, you know? Like, who's Lord? For the church, there's only one Lord, right? Only, and he does not share power, if you uh, like to see Lord of the Rings, right? And the one who's Lord isn't your spiritual leader, right? It isn't your charismatic pastor, bless his heart, right? And it's not even you. It's Jesus. That's what it means to be a part of the people of God. You have given up control of something. Talking about just blowing away what we do here on Sunday morning is a small fraction of what it means to be the people of God coming to church on a Sunday morning. And yet somehow, isn't it interesting that that has tend to, tended to be the thing that's risen to the surface of what it means to be the people of God. Well, you go to this place that's really brutal, it's horrible, a one hour on a Sunday morning, and you sing some songs you don't like and listen to a guy you don't enjoy. Right? All right. Now, what on earth would compel, would ever compel someone to give up the right to rule themselves. You with me? What on earth 
would compel someone to give up the very ownership of their life? Well, glad you asked, because it tells us. It's the overwhelming, staggering, transformative, what the, the phrase in the scripture is, excellencies of him who called them out of darkness into his marvelous light. It is the excellencies of Jesus. That's what they saw, all right? So what does that mean? We're, we're getting close to being done, all right? What does that mean? It means that Jesus, in your mind, is magnificent, is of the highest quality, the highest standard, exceptional, marvelous, wonderful, perfect, preeminent, matchless, supreme, superior, admirable, worthy, unparalleled in value. It means that you have a position towards Jesus that leads you to think he's tremendous, fantastic, top-notch, awesome, out of this world, right? Too good to be true. Mind-blowing, right? The conviction of the church is that Jesus outshines it all. That's it. What's the common bond of Christians through time and space, transcending culture, race, language, ethnicity, right? It's that they have all individually come to the conclusion through various journeys, trials, and experiences that Jesus is the most excellent, most glorious, most praiseworthy, most beautiful, most worthy, most triumphant, most delightful, most enjoyable, highest good that the human heart can ever experience. That's what it means to be a Christian. That's what it means, y'all. All right? Prove me wrong. Prove me wrong. Find any renewal movement in Christianity that at its center does not have a newfound fascination with the character and nature of God. Right? That he is better. That he is better. Better than money. Better than fame. Better than popularity. Better than all the pleasures the world can promise. That he's more beautiful, more faithful, more loving, more graceful, more forgiving, more empowering, more. That he's more, right? That his kingdom is truer, his ways are wiser, his vision purer, his life larger, his blood stronger, his mercy greater. That his grace is sufficient. I'm just getting started. All right? It's why at the end of all things, the saints cast their crowns down. What does it mean to cast your crown down? It means all of your accomplishments, all of your conquests, all of your beauty, everything good about you is thrown at the feet of the person who gave it to you in the first place. To be a Christian means to feel that Jesus is the most compelling, beautiful, praiseworthy, excellent, good that the human heart can experience. That's why we cast our crowns down before him at the end of all things. Everything good that could be accredited to you saying it's all because of him, right? And nothing, Jesus, is compared to your achievements, your conquest, your honor, your glory, right? This is what you have if you wanna be a Christian. This is what you have been first and foremost called to. Okay? To delight in, rejoice in the beauties and excellencies of God. It is your first and foremost calling. Therefore, the first call of the Christian isn't to work, it's to worship. Huh? The first call of the Christian isn't to duty, it's to delight. Right? Your first call as a Christian isn't to performance, it's to feasting. It's why Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Can I ask you a question today? Are you feasting? Are you drinking of the water of life or are you on the outside looking in, right? Do you 
see him as mysteriously wonderful and worthy. The invitation's been sent. Are you pulling up a chair and feasting at the table? Or are you still pointing out your sin as to why you can't feast? Your first call as a Christian is to delight yourself in the Lord. That's why the first commandment is, guess what? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, strength, soul. And the second commandment is like it. It sets a clear priority, right? God, the priority of our affections to God comes first and foremost if you are to be a Christian. And everything we do then flows from that first and foremost affection. It sets a clear priority. When we love and delight in God, right, we can then truly love and delight in other people. So scripture is gonna tell us that God has acted, he has called, he has formed the church by the work of Christ, and it tells us they've given up control, and then it tells us they've been commissioned. There's my other C word, commissioned. What is the commission of the church? Well, it said it, that you may proclaim what? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his light. It is both the occupation and the proclamation of the church, the excellencies of Jesus, right? Not only have you been called to delight in the Father of lights, you've been commissioned to declare the Father of lights, that he is worthy. So if the primary occupation of the church is delighting in God, the primary proclamation of the church is declaring God's great worth. That's it, right? It is both the motivation and the message. It is the beauties of his love that compel us, like we read at the beginning of the service today, and it is the beauty of his love that stands above all other declaration. It's higher than all other flags or the beauty of his love. Or as Song of Solomon says, and as we sang today, he brought me to his banqueting table and his banner is his love. His banner over me is love. What stands above all other bonds, all other banners of the Christian church, it's his love, his beauty, his value, his strength. We must do both. I'd argue we have to do both. We have to delight and we have to declare, right? Only when we do both will we stand amongst the ranks of historical biblical Christianity. We must declare and we must delight. You must rejoice and you must proclaim. That's what it means. This is why if we only delight ourselves, we run the risk of being navel-gazing, self-centered, self-focused, gorging ourselves while others starve. If we only delight right, ourselves, we run the risk of becoming consumer Christians. And if we only declare, we run the risk of being hypocritical Christians, not eating the food we're selling. If we only declare and don't delight, we run the risk of dwelling in darkness while pointing other people to the light. I submit to you that the bond of the church through time and space, the eternal transcendent commonality of the people of God is that they are a people who declare and delight in the beauties of Jesus. Declare and delight in the beauties of Jesus. That's what it means to be the church, right? Why? Because Jesus has done for them what law nor politics nor social club could do. Once they had not received mercy, now we have received mercy, right? So, and what's our response to that mercy? Delighting and declaring, that's it. They are delighting and declaring in the excellence of Christ, what he's done, who he is. Page after page of the New Testament is urging you to see for yourself the wonders of Christ. Page after page of the entire Bible, really, is urging you, bringing you to see the wonders of Christ. Open the pages of the Bible. What it's going to do, it's going to pull you up to the precipice of who God is. And like you would stand at the edge of the Grand Canyon and behold the vista, the Bible is going to say, behold, the character and nature of God. 
take in the expanse of his glory. This is delighting in, right? It's making room for the internal work of of the cross to have its way in us. And then it invites us into his mission, declare it, invites us to his work by proclaiming what he has done for all, right? He is the motivation in the message. It's internal and it's external. It's tasting and it's telling. It's occupation and it's proclamation. This has been and will always be the defining characteristic of the people of God. Delighting and declaring the value of Christ. That's what it means. A a radical, obsessive love relationship with who Jesus is and what he's done. And if anything else begins to displace delighting and declaring the work of Christ, then the church slowly begins to mutate into something other than biblical community. That's my argument. Prove me wrong. Open the Bible. Hang out with people. Tell them how I don't know what I'm talking about and show them in the Bible where I'm wrong. <laughs> Just feeling a little edgy today. I don't know why. There we go. <laughs> Listen, in our time, right? In our time, your time, today, all right? If you allow your vision of Christian community to be co-opted by some passing trend, not only will you yourself miss out, but your faith will become utterly irrelevant. And this is, this is why. What happens when you come to church and all the dude on the pulpit, all he does is parrot the same cultural message that's trending in society at large, right? Surprise, surprise, church becomes completely irrelevant, right? Why go to church? Because, I mean, just watch the news, right? Or what happens when people come to church and the outstanding message, whether spoken or not, is homeschool your kids, right? Or be a Republican, or here's some rules. Then we forfeit being the people of God on the mission of God, and we've downshifted into a social club. Nothing's wrong, y'all, with driving an odyssey, or homeschooling your kids, or being of a certain political persuasion. That's just not what it means to be a Christian. That's not the message, and that's not the motivation. And if we as individuals begin to lose sight of that common, eternal, Christ-centered, gospel-centered definition of what Christianity is, then we will lose our way in the storm. One-third of the church has made a mass exodus in the past two years, according to Barna. The church is one-third smaller. And don't tell me you don't think some of this stuff has to do with this. Hmm? Christianity getting co-opted, hijacked for other agendas, right? Jesus is the only hill I'm willing to die on, right? So you you egalitarian, awesome. You you think this way about gender rules? Sounds great. You post pre-trib? Cool. Like you like hardcore liturgy and reform theology? Good for you, man. How's it helping you delight and declare Jesus, right? Like what's it doing in your life? of worship towards the Lord, right? Like, that's fine, right? Or do they just, do those convictions just enable you to look down your nose at other Christians? Like, we're gonna get to all the division within the the church. We're not quite there yet. But have we turned our theology into a means of superiority towards others? That is a constant danger of being in the Christian bubble too long. Because if so, you've drifted from the primary motivation and message of what it means to do life together as Christians. So what can you do? How can you actively push back against these lesser compromised visions of Christian community? Well, what would it look like, y'all, if you began to intentionally choose to delight in God? Is that a new phrase for you? Is this a new concept? That God is maybe an enjoyable thing? That Jesus maybe is a delightful person to hang out with and talk to and read about? Is this a new concept? This idea of of getting 
pleasure and joy and delight from being a Christian? What would it look like for you to begin to intentionally choose to delight in God? What if you ask God to just light up your life with the Holy Spirit, right? The prayer set me aflame. Holy Spirit is a legit New Testament prayer, right? In fact, that says the joy of knowing God, I would say, is the birthright of every Christian, right? And then here's this. Let me just remind you of this, and then we're going to be done. I want to remind you that Christianity is not advice. Christianity is not do this, do that, and then things will probably maybe work out for you. Christianity isn't here's, here's, here's a way you can think about marriage. Christianity isn't first, first and foremost, here's the way you should raise your kids, okay? Christianity is news, good news. The gospel, that's what it's going to call it, good news. So what does that mean, right? Christianity is something that has happened. The message of Christianity is not advice, it is news. Something has been done for you, right? Past tense, something has acted and you have received. It's not advice, it's news. It's not just do this and do that. It's something has been done on your behalf. And I'll say this right now, man. Your greatest witness in this day and age is not going to be your ability to parse Greek or defend historical grounds of Christian faith. Your greatest witness today will be your joy. I mean, honestly, the bar is pretty low. Like if you want to just stick out in society right now, just try smiling, you know? Like the bar is pretty low. Anyway, it's not that hard for us right now these days to just kind of stick out like a light in the darkness. Just be a joyful person. Don't be someone who's enraged, right? Don't be someone who's just on the verge of exploding at everything. Like, I would argue that you're going to stick out, man. Just like the joy of the Lord is our strength. Amen, right? Church is on mission. It has a message. And that message is not about us. It's that Christ has done something. He has acted. He has saved. He has redeemed. That's the mission. That's the message, right? Let's stand and pray.